Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. For the last six weeks, I've been providing guidelines for the body exercises. Again, in each of the body exercises, we consider Dhamma and we consider observables laying Dhamma teachings over the observables like a template. The Dhamma concerns, in each case, almost exclusively non-self impermanence and to a limited extent suffering. Observables are, in each case, some aspect of the body which normal, untutored worldlings tend to regard as manifestations or even proof of the body-self. The body is a substantial, fixed thing and a key facet of the self widely presumed to exist. But the observables fall short, largely because of their impermanence of verifying the body self. By the way, I use the term untutored worldling a lot, or just worldling. This translates a Pali expression the Buddha uses to indicate the common person who is not yet on the Buddhist path. We say these observables provide potential evidence for this underlying body self, so we observe them. This is internal analysis. In particular, we zoom into the impermanence and contingency of the observables in contrast to the relative presumed permanence of the body self. Then, ideally, after settling into a higher jhana, where this next step is an intuitive assessment, we attempt to bring the presumed body-self to mind and ask, where is it among the evidence? Failing this, we recognize the body-self as an abstract intrusion into the observable evidence, thereby undermining the presumption of its existence. This is the practice of non-self. When we practice this a lot, the self fades as a persistent factor in our comprehension of the world. Finally, we reflect that this exercise is aided in ending clinging to things, in this case the body, as me and mine, which had been a source of so much human suffering. Aside from the body-self, there are two remaining facets of the self, the witness-self and the mind-self, allocated but one exercise each. Today we turn to the witness-self, and it's one exercise which focuses specifically on feeling as observable potential evidence for the presumed existence of a witness-self. The body-self and mind-self are presumed facets that make common sense. I am a body and I am a mind. These treat the self subjectively. We turn inward to find the parts and features of the presumed self. The witness-self treats the self objectively. That is, 
in terms of its relationship to what is presumed to be beyond the self. Presuming the witness self comes with the presumption of self and other, subject and object, a world out there from which the self stands apart as a witness with its own interests, its own likes and dislikes, and ultimately its own intentions and plans that guide its actions in the world out there. I expect that the reason that there are so many body exercises in contrast to the one witness exercise and one mind exercise is the relative ease with which we can attend to physical phenomena and visualize them. But I estimate that the witness self is actually the most prominent facet of the self. It comes to the fore as we interact with others, engage in worldly activities. It generally plays the starring role in the narratives we spin about ourselves. So let me cite the feeling exercise. Here, when experiencing a pleasant feeling, a bhikkhu comprehends, I experience a pleasant feeling. When experiencing a painful feeling, he comprehends, I experience a painful feeling. When experiencing a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he comprehends, I experience a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. When experiencing a worldly pleasant feeling, he comprehends, I experience a worldly pleasant feeling. When experiencing an unworldly pleasant feeling, he comprehends, I experience an unworldly pleasant feeling. When experiencing a worldly painful feeling, he comprehends, I experience a worldly painful feeling. When experiencing an unworldly painful feeling, he comprehends, I experience an unworldly painful feeling. When experiencing a worldly neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he comprehends, I experience a worldly neither painful nor pleasant feeling. When experiencing an unworldly neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he comprehends, I experience an unworldly neither painful nor pleasant feeling. We found little Dhammic content in the breath, body parts, etc. But feeling is a hugely important technical term in the Buddha's teaching, elaborated in detail in many other suttas and appearing as a link in the twelvefold dependent co-arising. Therefore, we find in this case that there is substantial Dhammic content implicit in the exercise itself which is then supplemented by the Dhamma of its refrain. It behooves us to practice this exercise in the context of familiarity with the Dhamma of feeling. So let me quickly outline the essentials of the Dhamma of feeling. Feeling is the most basic attribution of meaningfulness, of mattering, of preference. Most simply, it is the assessment that arises when we find something either pleasant or painful, or either agreeable or disagreeable, or either attractive or aversive. A neither painful nor pleasant feeling is often described as neutral or indifferent, but I'm of the mind that it is, like pain and pleasure, fully a matter of interest. 
but of the kind not readily classified as painful nor as pleasant. Maybe we just don't know if it'll turn out to be agreeable or disagreeable, but we think it may be one or the other, or maybe we're just curious or suspicious. Worldly feelings are based on input from the senses. Unworldly feelings have to do with our spiritual practice. Generous deeds or meditative states evoke a sense of well-being that is pleasant, for instance. The position of feeling in the chain of dependent co-arising and other conditional factors reveals a lot, though feeling can arise in contexts independent of these common relations. We learn that feeling arises from contact. Contact is the point at which we relate to things as self and other or as subject and object. Contact itself is based on the presumption of a substantial fixed self as well as the presumption of a world out there that provides resources and dangers for the self. This is the witness self. Feeling in this context is the first inclination of self-interest and becomes a basis of our self-interested responses, both witnessing and acting, to the things of the world. Feeling is readily observable, just look for likes and dislikes, but the observables here are distinct from the observables of the body exercises. Breathing gets on fine without a body self. We can have body parts without a body self. But feelings most typically arise from that very presumption that there is a substantial fixed self as well as others. These presumptions are built into contact. Feeling typically arises in close proximity to the presumption of a witness self, and it is difficult to experience one without the other. Feeling is well-connected. The Buddha tells us, All things come together in feeling. Feeling, though at root simple and observable, grows into our whole cognitive and emotional encounter with the world. Independent co-arising, it is the immediate condition for craving, which is the primary motivator of the worldling's actions in the world. There is also a branch chain of conditionality that branches off the standard chain and drives just how we assess the world. With contact as condition, there is feeling. What one feels, that one perceives. What one perceives, that one thinks about. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. With what one has mentally proliferated as the source, perceptions and notions born of mental proliferation beset a man with respect to past, future, and present. We can even see the origins of our narrations with the witness self in a starring role in all of this. A disinterested witness self would have no reason to act or assess or evaluate. This function is served by feeling. Feeling in itself is simple, easily observed, and hyper-impermanent, arises quite spontaneously, endures, only a moment. 
Yet feeling grows into so much more, conditioned also by the presumption of the witness self that gave rise to feeling. Basically, the whole world as we experience it spins out from feeling and is shaped by self-interest. That presumed witness self cannot be directly observed, but we have the feeling it is looking over our shoulder, much as our national identity might stand invisible in the background and influence our attitudes and actions. Although feeling is consistently defined in very simple terms, it is worth noting that the Pali word for feeling, vedana, is in fact a gerund of the verb vedeti, sense, know, or experience, suggesting all that feeling grows into, essentially equivalent to consciousness. Consciousness itself is often regarded by the untutored worldling as a facet of self, if not self itself, substantial and fixed, witnessing all that happens in the world. The Buddha regarded this as a pernicious view, sometimes held even by some of his disciples. An exercise we will discuss later concerns the five aggregates of which feeling is a factor as well as consciousness. It is also identified as the self by the untutored worldling. The aggregates exercise invites us to extend the scope of observables beyond feeling and could well have been included with feeling among the witness exercises. This is enough dhamma for our purposes. Internal analysis involves experiencing and comprehending painful, pleasant feelings and so on as they come up either on the cushion or throughout the day and notice their impermanence. He, he abides, abides contemplating, contemplating in feeling the nature of arising or he abides contemplating in feeling the nature of vanishing, or he abides contemplating in feeling the nature of both arising and vanishing. Turning to external analysis, the challenge is to separate the witness self out. It is the presumed external source of feelings, what we are calling external feelings. In this way, he abides contemplating feeling in the feelings internally, or he abides contemplating feeling in the feelings externally, or he abides contemplating feelings in the feelings both internally and externally. The problem is that in most contexts, it was hard to shake the feeling that the witness self was there even during internal analysis. There seem to be three ways to remedy this. The first is to observe feelings in a context in which feelings arise independently from contact, and so the witness self is not already there. Unworldly feelings arise when we are engaged in wholesome, selfless practices. The Dhamma exercise for the seven factors of awakening afford a good opportunity to observe unworldly feelings as rapture and pleasure. The second is to bring internal analysis into at least the second jhana 
in which it is difficult to sustain the presumption of self, but in which feelings continue unabated. The third and final way to separate out the presumption of the witness self in external analysis is the most direct and requires more discursive preparation than than we're used to in the body exercises in order to talk our way through it. We have an alternative description of the contemplation of feeling independent of the Satipatthana literature, which provides details and tracks the Satipatthana refrain very closely. Now, Ananda, one who says feeling is myself, should be told there are three kinds of feelings, friend, pleasant, painful, and neither pleasant nor painful. Which of the three do you consider to be yourself? When a pleasant feeling is felt, no painful, or neither pleasant nor painful feeling is felt, but only pleasant feelings. When a painful feeling is felt, no pleasant or neither pleasant nor painful feeling is felt, but only painful feeling. And when a neither pleasant nor painful feeling is felt, no pleasant or painful feeling. A pleasant feeling is impermanent, conditioned, dependently arisen, bound to decay, to vanish, to fade away, to cease. And so too is a painful feeling and a neither pleasant nor painful feeling. So anyone who, on experiencing a pleasant feeling, thinks, this is myself, must at the cessation of that pleasant feeling think, myself is gone, and the same with a painful and neither pleasant nor painful feeling. Thus, whoever thinks, feeling is myself, is contemplating something in this present life that is impermanent, a mixture of happiness and unhappiness, subject to arising and passing away. Therefore, it is not fitting to maintain feeling is myself. In short, there is witnessing going on, but with the arising of each contingent, painful, pleasant, or neither pleasant nor painful feeling, not to mention with the arising of the percepts and the evaluations that grow from these feelings. Still, we have no evidence for a substantial and fixed witness behind this witnessing, that is, of the self so readily presumed who is doing the witnessing. This sounds illogical to most people at first. Witnessing without a witness, seeing without a seer, breathing without a breather. But there you have it. The witnessing is momentary. The witness would have to be substantial and fixed. By analogy, there might be raining going on, but does that mean there must be a rainer behind it? Next week, I'll discuss the single exercise of the third Satipatthana, the contemplation of mind. I think I will also have time to offer an explanation of the difference between samatha and vipassana in all this, calm and insight. 
two terms often taken to represent two distinct and incongruous methods of meditation. To learn more about the Rethinking the Satipatthana Project, please go to sirigu.org slash chintita. That is s-i-t-a-g-u dot org c-i-n-t-i-t-a.